partly, I mean, we, we, we were based in Nashville for five years and uh, then the pandemic kicked in and it also looked like Donald Trump would try to reelect himself, which was a frightening prospect. And he did, in fact, try to reelect himself. So we were kind of, you know, we, uh, we were right to imagine that. Um, but our business is still based in Nashville and we go over there a lot. So I, I you know, I have no idea, you know, unless a severe lockdown intervenes where you just can't move, um, we're liable to be anywhere really. Is it being in the U S under Trump as a, as a foreigner? Cause you know, it seems like, I, I don't know that the UK is in a much better position at the moment. Well, we don't have guns and Jesus. So we've got two things. There are two very toxic factors, nothing against Jesus himself, but uh, most people who the, generally the more people profess to be a follower of Jesus, the less Christian they are, but whatever they call themselves, they're a menace. And um, the alliance of the sort of, kind of <laughs> a godless pirate like Donald Trump and a bunch of um, fanatics uh, like the religious right uh, in America. We don't have that in Britain. We have a lot of the other ills. And, you know, Britain's been a satellite of the States since World War II. Whatever happens in the States is going to be recast in Britain. So it doesn't look great either place. But I think, well, I don't really think, I just feel, you know, I mean, I, I, I think everybody was, I know how many people were deeply horrified when first nobody believed Donald Trump would be elected. Then suddenly he was. Then everybody was in shock at least the world survived and America sort of survived four years of him. But the fallout from Trump witnessed the whole thing with the Supreme Court um, seems to be pretty endless. Um, ironically, if Donald Trump re-elects himself, we're less likely to have a superpower confrontation between the states and Russia because Trump is one of Putin's men. So it might keep the peace more, but... You, you know more. I mean, I, 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 my comments are general, and they don't come from any cr close close scrutiny of of politics. Um, you know, Tennessee is a red state, but Nashville is full of blue thinking folks. <laughs> Broad strokes. I, I think that's spot on, and it is interesting. Nashville is one of those places, like Austin, Texas, or Athens, Georgia, where it's almost this this oasis. Yeah, Tucson, Arizona. You know the, the um, and, and the, all those the Chapel Hill and all that lot. You know in North Carolina. I mean, it, it's a phenomenon because it, it's the town versus country thing, which is exactly the same in Britain. The town is like a hundred, hundred and fifty years ahead of the countryside. Um, if you disenfranchised everybody who lived more than 50 miles from water, you'd never have a right-wing government again anywhere. Except, of course, you know, then you've got all the righteous folks in Athens and Nashville. And 
you know, all, all the other, and Tucson, all the inland places in the States. But it, it, whatever it is, the gap between the town and country is, is enormous. And time has moved very fast. It's moved too fast for, for everybody, I think, whatever side you're on. And I would say it's very hard not to be on one side or the other now. Time has moved too fast for us. Where are you from? I'm from San Francisco originally. And when, so, you know, obviously from one bubble to another, but when I moved out here to New York, the thing that really amazed me was how, how quickly outside of the city it turns into the country. And these days, how quickly outside of the city it, it's Trump signs and it's MAGA and it's everything else. It's really just, you know, maybe 20 minutes outside of New York City and you hit that. Yeah. When I very first started, um, hanging out with the REMs. I remember Peter Buck saying to me, wow, you get 30 miles outside of Athens and it's a very different business. You don't want to go to those gas stations. You know, it, it was, it's, it's been born in upon me for, for a very long time that, that, you know, you stay inside your bubbles, really. That's right. And also something that I'm trying to be mindful of, and I think people are hopefully right-thinking people are generally, is that your experience 30 minutes outside of Athens is going to be different than, you know, a person of color's experience 30 minutes outside of Athens. Yes. Well, uh, right. I mean, there's all this, exactly, there's all these different different subgroups and uh, everybody's kind of suspicious of everybody else. Yeah. What brought you to Nashville in the first place? Well, I I recorded a record there with Gillian Welch and Dave Rawlings in 2004, 2003, 2004, um, called Spooked. And that was my first encounter with East Nashville. And then um, when I met Emma, uh, Ten years later, she had moved to Nashville from Australia, and we moved around a fair bit, as is our wont. We're both quite mobile people, so we lived all over the place and actually nowhere for six months, just lived out of two suitcases, but we... We settled in Nashville again in, in a couple of years later, 2014, 15. And, uh, you know, Gil and Dave were there and uh, Brendan Benson had been in touch with me already and he was there. Grant Lee Phillips just moved there from um, from California. So I had three kind of musician people, people I already knew, sets of people, well, for Gil and and Dave. Um, So I I already had a bit of a network of people to play with. And it seemed like a great place to be, and it still is as regards recording. I know far more musicians in Nashville than I do in London. And I'm much more likely, um, if I make another record, to go there 
So Emma and I use the same rhythm section, the, the Johns, um, Radford and Estes. It's just, it, you know, it's what it says on the label. It's just full of great musicians. You said if I make another record, not when I make another record. Well, I'm 70 next next year. And at this point, I think every record you make is potentially your last. It took me five years to get this one out. And although I wrote most of the songs two years ago, it's still a slow process. What with pressing plants and all that. And I've now got a Patreon set up, which means that if I write a song, I can do a reasonable demo of it and put it up there. And it means that if you really want to follow the the Hitchcock story, it's up there, you know. And I, I I've got a songwriting habit. <laughs> I'm really my main thing is just writing songs. Everything I do is designed to pay for me to keep writing songs. You know, I do the online show with them. I I still do some live dates. I have Patreon going. I sell artwork. You know, um, the thing I where I am most comfortable in life, or not just comfortable, but the thing that absorbs me the way a a fisherman is absorbed by fishing or a golfer is absorbed. A surgeon is absorbed by surgery, whatever it is for me, it's writing songs. So, and I don't really, I I want them to do as well as they can, but I really into just actually getting the things down in a basic form. Making a record is more complicated and expensive and, that's fun too, but it's uh, so. I mean, I'm I sure if 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 the machinery is all running and the world is still here in another two or three years, and you know the, the budget is there, I will uh, shuffle over, you know, to the Nashville Cats and say, "Here we are." You know, who's going to produce this one then? And you know, they're brilliant because they'll you can play them a song that you've just finished and they'll make it sound like you've been playing it together for six months. Those people just, they make you seem authentic. (laughs) I love that. You know, I'm, I'm a scruffy guy and my demos are all full of dust and hairs and rusty springs, but those people just make it sound whoosh. Like it's a real record. This notion that any record could potentially be your last, which obviously is the case just generally, regardless of what age you are, but especially now. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, it becomes, I guess, more and more. So the case as you get older, you know, obviously a a kind of a melancholy thought, but does, does that change the math of your songwriting and the album that you're putting out? Does it make it, is there more gravity in specific songs or, you know, does it make you want to, put more stuff in the world while you still have time to do so? Definitely the latter. I think, well, I got to get these songs out. Even if they're just four track demos, I'll put them up on Patreon. You know, boy, the world, the world can't end without, you know, my 736 Patreons hearing this latest demo. 
And left to my own devices, you know, if I had the time and the budget, I'd, I'd do them all professionally with with the Nashville Cats. But that would be a it would be a hefty process uh, financially, and I, you know. But in terms of you mean gravity in terms of the songs, you mean the sense of yeah, in terms of making each one count, I suppose. I probably should think like that, but I think if I got self conscious. If I thought, man, I've really got to deliver with this one, it would shut me up. Uh, I, what I have learned over the years is to anything that occurs to me, I write it down and then I try and sing it. And then we go from there. So like the the latest record, I don't think that's got suffering from too much gravity. There's simply a bunch of sub-personalities that came bubbling through in 2020 apropos of nothing you know when i started i hadn't even it wasn't even we didn't even know about the pandemic as far as i knew i was just going to spend the rest of my life on the road and suddenly i was in a hotel in florida and out came the feathery serpent god and then you know a few songs in i was locked down but they were coming out by then so out they came and, and i had time to time and a four and a half track machine on which to record them. So I was, I was blessed, you know, we finished Emma's record and, and she put that out and uh, she got the whole tiny ghost off the ground. Uh, The songs, the most recent ones I've been writing, there seems to be an awful lot of sort of old age stuff in it, but I, I just, you know, if that's what I, if that's what I'm writing, then, so be it. I've I've always had a melancholy streak in my songwriting, just as I've had a daft streak. I don't. Well, I wouldn't sacrifice either. I think you have to have. I certainly have to have the two to create a balance. Also, I think. I mean, all the great songs are melancholy, really, unless you, unless you're Paul McCartney. <laughs> that was kind of the magic of the Beatles. I mean, this is a very elementary reading of it, but the those two personalities contrasting one another sounds like there's an effort to emulate that because you're obviously you love a good pop song, but there is an underlying melancholy current to it. I think when it when it's really good, I mean, whether it's from me or anybody, it's when you manage to get them both in a song. That's why I I go back to my my archetypal my matrix my is Visions of Johanna by Bob Dylan. You know that one? Yeah, of course. Uh, which is, I mean, <laughs> it, it, it's profound. It's bottomlessly profound, if you like, but it also has things like, geez, I can't find my knees in it. You know, the one with the muscle say, geez, I can't find my knees. You know, and you've got, name me someone not, who's not a parasite, and I'll go out and say a prayer for them, and you've got, you know, inside the museums, infinity goes up on trial. You've got all that, but you've just got to. Uh, he 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 kind of goes in both directions at once, and I sort of I think that's for me that's the template of a great song. Generally, I only wind up in one direction, and they never really go that far. Probably because I'm so impatient, I just start new songs rather than refining the ones I have, but. Um, I'm always hoping I'll 
I'll get it. You know, I sort of throw a lot of darts and hope I'll, I hope I'll <laughs> hit a dartboard. You used the word subpersonalities earlier, and I'm curious what that means in this context. See, I don't normally know what my songs are about for sometimes 20 years. I'm now getting really good on what I was doing in the 80s. I can see what I was at, what my subconscious was telling me. Ah, this song is about bringing the baggage from old relationships into a new relationship. Whoa, fancy that. Whereas at the time, I'm very, I'm a real servant to what comes through. I'm, I'm submissive to my unconscious. I don't challenge it. I, I sort of take dictation. So the shuffle mania came through, the feathery serpent god and the shuffle man and the the Scorpio detective and the midnight tram from nowhere and Socrates and the Satomi shovel, the mythical British pub and things. And I, looking at them all to find a common theme, they seem to be, if they're not sub-personalities of me, they're definitely sub-personalities. You could sort of put them in a, cartoon strip together they're almost like a bunch of superheroes i can imagine the feathery serpent god going off on a quest with the the satomi shovel you know like green lantern the flash or something or the balloon man the balloon man well the balloon man years ago yeah the balloon man i don't know if he was a superhero or a super villain or just a sort of super nuisance but the balloon man's more like something that the joker would have used you know I think he, um, you know, that sort of thing. He would, he would have been deployed by somebody else. But um, I don't know if he, the, the balloon man actually had a had the enough of an identity to be a supervillain. But I can imagine somebody deploying the balloon man, pressing a button, and out he comes. He, and there's more of them. Oh my God! Look, they're coming. They're coming off. They're up Sixth Avenue, and they're coming along Forty Fourth. Jeez, you know. They're the flying monkeys from the Wizard of Oz. Well, that sort of thing. Yeah. There's a degree of abstraction here. I mean, are they characters, or are they just an approximation of a of a feeling almost? Well, maybe you approximate a feeling enough, and it becomes a character. So, uh. I mean, that's what the gods are, were, <laughs> in a way. You know, the gods were weather conditions and impulses, lust, jealousy, rain. And I think, you know, one of the reasons we have moods is because we've grown up on a planet with weather. I suspect that if we'd just grown up in a planet with icy blue sky or, you know, it didn't change, I don't think we'd be like that i mean you know everyone knows that the moon the moon affects menstrual cycles and the tides and crabs and stuff but i feel like the whole thing is weather is very emotional so i think we we as creatures centuries gone by uh, maybe maybe fashioned um characters out out of feelings if you like and so my yeah, God knows. Maybe all my characters on Shuffle Mania are uh, my own feelings, which would make me more emotional than I think I am. 
It's interesting. And it, and it does seem to be a bit of an exchange. You know, it's been a very long time since I've taken a poetry class, I, not since college, but there is, there's the trope of the pathetic fallacy, it's called, which is sort of in the yeah. opposite direction where you imbue the weather with your own emotions. You look at the well, but those well, like the, the sky yeah. is crying, for example. Oh, you mean you look at right? You look at the sky in emotional terms. Well, that would make sense, you know. If that's one of the things, if that's one of the sources of our emotions, anyway, then to some extent we'd be acknowledging it. But you know, like moods can be pretty tidal. I've been thinking a lot about metaphor or symbolism in an abstraction to me they play very similar roles wherein and i know you're a painter as well wherein there's a sense in which it's the job of the artist whether it's poetry or song to get at a feeling which is almost impossible to say directly in words yes but we always have to put it into words to explain ourselves afterwards I mean, I suppose you could try and explain it in drawings. Like, I mean, you know, what a song is basically about is about itself. And you can dissect it or say what it reminds you of, but uh, certainly if you've written the song, probably the best way to describe the song would be simply to sing it because those are the, those are the, the feelings that that prompted it. I mean, oh, maybe that's why we sing some words rather than just writing them down as poems. Because once you sing, it's kind of incant incantatory. It's an incantation. You're you're chanting. You're manifesting almost. You're manifesting. It's like I was. I had a for. I had a theory for a while that all songs were either invocations or or exorcisms. You were either going, I want you, come here, baby, or it's like, oh, hey, leave me alone, get out of my life, woman, whatever, get out of my life, Trump, you know, just I want to destroy you, that kind of thing. It, it, it was, but again, I suppose, you know, the great songs are both, and the visions of Johanna's probably both. Um, then, then, then you're into the magical property of song, and then I suppose you're into what is magic, and you know that's another definition. It's interesting when he said the word exorcism, I my mind went in a different direction, an almost therapeutic one, and and I think you were alluding to this a little bit, wherein for you songs are a way of processing feelings and emotion that you don't necessarily even know that you have. I hope so. I hope, I mean, I've always thought my songs were new more than I did, uh, which worries me when I think they might be prophetic because I don't tend to prophesy anything very good. But I think they're, yeah, I, I, you definitely, I mean, that's, I don't know. Like, if you know what you're going to say, why say it? Or alternatively, if you don't know what you're going to say, why say it? I I don't know if you know what does one know in advance. And you discover it as it comes out of you, which is why I um, I'm hesitant to 
to say much about my songs for sure until I've known them for a while. But I, I'm just because shuffle mania has come out. Part of my job is to kind of define it to the world. Cause it's very hard to sell people things that can't be defined. You know, is this an, is this an orange or a peach or could this cucumber be an avocado? You know, you, you kind of, People prefer things when they're defined. It sounds like for you, spontaneity is a very important process. Part of the process of creating as well is is being open to these ideas when they come. Um, I have to be because otherwise I lose them. I lose about 90% of my ideas because I don't write them down. I think, oh, that's a good song title. Well, that's a good line. And I then don't make a note of it and it's all forgotten. And I... You know, I have a very quick fire mind. Um, it, it, it probably now would be defined as ADHD. I, I, I'm aware of if I don't grab an idea instantly, or don't follow something up quickly, it'll just go. And I spend a lot of time trying to get things in the right order. It makes me more impatient, more hasty, and then <laughs> that process then exaggerates itself because there's a new idea waiting to in the wings, waiting to nudge this one out of place. So if I don't catch it right then, it's gone. I think a lot about this idea of not just inspiration, but but almost channeling a muse or channeling some external force i know like famously i know that this is a very problematic figure now but famously van morrison used this approach in writing astral weeks of just sitting in a porch on a porch and the the words almost sort of coming to him like he's speaking in tongues but i i wonder if we almost do a disservice when we leave the process entirely entirely up to that because obviously it creates a great deal of frustration in those moments when it doesn't come. If it doesn't come, then uh, I don't know. You just have to do something else. I mean, you can't force it. You can't force it. I know people I've talked to other songwriters who will say, well, I, I, yeah, I've written some stuff, but they're fake. They're fake songs. They're not real. I say, what do you mean? And they'd say, well, you know, you, they're just, I know they sound like songs, but they aren't really. And I thought, okay, I do know what you mean. And I can do that myself. Um, I think I probably wrote a lot of them in the sort of three years between uh, my last record and this one, you know, 16, 17, 18, 19, whatever. I didn't write very much, Um, but I was filling up notebooks uh, but I just haven't kept any of it, and uh, I think they were just <laughs> they were just fake songs, and um, they weren't strong enough to make me go back to them. So, yeah, you know, or you just got to do something else. I I I find it actually. I'd started once lockdown started. I started painting again, and that really helped me. That really. I'd already started again, but that really helped me come up with more. 
because I was focusing on the paint and so the songs appear because no one's looking at them. I don't know. I, I, I mean, if you, if you never feel inspired, then you probably shouldn't be in the business of inspiration. If you're a fisherman who never catches anything, you should probably maybe, go into Maybe you can't. Yeah, maybe you should be doing something other than fishing. Yeah. So it sounds like, to a certain extent, the role that painting plays for you is almost getting your mind off of the songwriting process. Maybe it's meditative in a sense in that in that you can only truly be that you specifically and probably a lot of other songwriters can really only truly be inspired when you're not thinking about songwriting. Oh yeah. Uh, absolutely. I mean, I never write songs if I'm thinking about it. Uh, I simply realize that I am writing a song when I grab the notebook. Another great way to do it is to is to sing through a couple of cover songs. And sometimes I'll, if I've sung a couple of other people's songs, I'll suddenly just, I'll have the guitar still warm in my hands and then, and then a, a something else comes out, you know. Um, or I can even work on a couple of other songs of mine that aren't going anywhere and will probably be scrapped. And then suddenly the real thing comes through, but only because I'm really not looking for it. I also find if I do get two verses into a song, I start to get terribly self-conscious and I think, oh, God, I'm deciding what to do here. I'm deciding the direction and the fate of this. Um, and so very often I just get stuck with two verses and I kind of it's gone because I've become aware of what I'm doing. And I have a dream, which is an, an analogy of this, which is I think I'm flying and I am flying. It's fantastic. And I get this maybe once or twice a week and I'm basically swimming through the air. But then as I become aware of it, I sink closer to the ground. And in the end, I'm just swimming in the grass. You know, like look, people look down at me. What are you doing there? I'm swimming in the grass. Uh, like, the, oddly enough, the fish in the grass in my other dream, which I actually put on the record, the raging muse. And that, I think that's to do with becoming aware of yourself and then it, that self-consciousness just freezes you, you know. You're, I think I, I sort of have to not know what I'm doing, really. This might be specific to art, the fine line between great art and just sheer ridiculousness. It's, it's, it's very thin at the end of the day, the, the line between flying in the sky and flying in the grass. It's, it's a thin line. Yeah. Well, you're, you know, there's nothing particularly noble about it. Um, and you're going to have, like, you know, you don't know if Dylan was halfway through Visions of Johanna and then just kind of, you know, farted really loudly or, something like that you know oh blimey i've got to go to the bathroom this isn't good you know you don't know what you don't know what's happening in the middle of that that's the most the most puncturing thing that could be happening you know it's so important to all these things that we imbue them with a certain level of mystique because that that's the magic well that's it but because it's the best part of you i don't want to be remembered for the person i was I want to be remembered for the person that wrote those songs. I want people to think I had some kind of insight 
and I was good with words and I melody and they go, wow, look at that. He must have been an interesting guy. Not, oh, Christ, did you actually know him? You know, similarly, you don't, I don't think it would have necessarily been that much fun being around any of the greats, you know, when they were being great, Bowie or Dylan or Lennon or, you know, were probably all pretty ghastly um, at points, but probably able to be extremely charming when necessary. You know, John had his good cop, Paul, and they had the, the Beatle uh, mask from which they could all operate. Um Supposedly, Shakespeare died after a drinking bout. He may well have been talking crap before he passed, you know. <laughs> I don't know. You know, was he, was he, shall I compare thee to a summer's day or whatever, or was he just saying, Jesus Christ, it's your round, you know, whatever, I don't know. That's one of the big downsides, I think, of this technological and social media world that we live in is that it's almost impossible to – to have that mystique. I don't know. We, you know, will there ever be another Sid Barrett or, or Captain Beefheart? Because everybody who makes music now, most of them are still very online. Uh, I, possibly. I mean, you know, will there ever be a bright autistic Capricorn artist? Almost certainly. Will they be able to disappear the way Beefheart and Barrett did is another matter. Um, you know, they were both gone before the intense level of scrutiny that we have now was out and about. Um, now you'd probably... They were both still around. They lived through it, but they were not involved in it. They weren't involved in it, but they also weren't, they weren't, you know, sort of an online sentinel standing outside their homes actually videoing or, you know, I mean... Constantly, they probably, I don't know, like setting a trap for a badger or something. The infrared camera comes on. But I know what you mean. It would be quite, it would be hard for something to gestate, for somebody to gestate unseen and unknown. On the other hand, it's probably easier for them to to get out, to, for the, to make their work accessible. I mean, it's like everybody can put out a record now. You don't have to have a record deal. You don't have to be able to press it up. Uh, you just have to be able to operate the machinery. There were other Beefhearts or uh, or Sid Barrett's or Brian Wilson's out there who just didn't necessarily have the means to amplify themselves. Uh, well, you know, they didn't. They didn't have all the magical chemical ingredients that creates those people. You know, whatever it is, an, an indulgent or a cruel parent, um, somebody making them feel both really special and slightly inadequate, and definitely a fairly high um, level of at least what would be called Aspergers now. And all those, all those factors, plus also the the time. You know, those three people conjured themselves up during the, an era that had an enormous amount of momentum. 
I don't know. Hopefully. I mean, there's still lots of, there's an awful lot of interesting music coming out, which I'm unfortunately don't hear because I don't prioritize listening to music that I don't know because I, I should, but I tend not to uh, listen to music when I'm drawing and I just tend to play LPs or whatever. My excuses are all rather lame. I think there's a lot of actually great stuff out there and I, I would like to make myself more available to it. Um, you know, there's, there's all kinds of people <laughs> producing and listening to everything, but I suppose also there's so much of it. And so it's quite hard to know where to start. There was a time when there were only 17 indie singles, so you could buy or listen to all of them. There was a time when there were 23 hippie albums, you know, so you could, it, it was a fixed chorale. <laughs> this rock and roll is as old as I am, you know, there's 70 years of this stuff going back until it turns into blues and jazz. Um, if, if you go from sort of Bill Haley, up to whatever whatever it is now and it's not really rock and roll anymore because rock and roll is an old folks medium i mean it's not really so yeah it is it's it is it's definitely it's just stuff it's for old folks sure i'm still rocking it's because i'm a senior citizen in reading a little bit up on this record um you know and obviously a five-year gap is very unusual for you you've been extremely prolific over your career but i saw a mention of a burnout at one point and and i was thinking about that and the about focusing on mental health because i think that you know obviously and i mentioned barrett and brian wilson and captain beefheart all, all in one breath we have a history of really romanticizing the struggle you know it goes back to van gogh or probably even earlier than that but i think there is a disservice there i think there is a disservice that you feel like you need to be tortured or go through something terrible in order to make great art but it sounds like at least in the process of making this record that you took you took time out for yourself and and you focused on that burnout well i was touring a lot i mean i I'm, i was working all the time so i wasn't just sitting there worrying about songs and I wrote a lot of songs but I didn't think they were very good and I also spent a lot of time working on some piano pieces that I still haven't finished but they might be good but they just never kind of they never they're still congealing so I might record them sometime I'm deep into my I'm about to land on the go over the waterfall of 70 so I must have made my last put my last record out when I was sixty four. Um, that was all written in my early sixties. But those guys, you know, they they were done. Barrett was done with music at twenty two. Beefheart was done with music at forty. Brian Wilson still comes up with pieces, but the masterpieces he was done with them. The true masterpieces. Also, those those people were born born on the wings of of LSD and the other drugs. They had that 
that sort of Faustian momentum that gave them incredible kind of insight. And I mean, they were talented people anyway, but it was like those drugs, you know, they mortgage your future, just like drinking mortgages. You're, (laughs) you're mortgaging tomorrow by grooving tonight. And, uh, but you know, sometimes you have to. But but it, it's uh, I've and I've said it before. I think Barrett just had a he he was like somebody who had a tube of talent and he squeezed it out all raw onto the canvas. He didn't mix it up, didn't dilute it with turpentine. He just squeezed it all out and then it was gone. Concentrated. Yeah, concentrated talent in a way that most of us just kind of eke out a little bit here and there, you know, Roger Waters does whatever he does, but it, because it was so constant, it was just, it was concentrate. And I think beef art was a bit the same. I don't know whether, whether acid played a big part in it, but you know, he was certainly burned out musically by the time he was 40. Uh, he produced an astonishing amount of, of work uh, in the late sixties when he was brutalizing his, young band members and running what now turns out to be a rather horrific cult, which is why they kind of fled him at various points. And if you meet surviving magic band members, they, a lot of them have his characteristics. They'll sort of wear funny hats and use, they're just like, they're like kids who have an abusive school teacher or parent. They echo, they echo Don Van Vliet, but they also resent what he did to them. Brian Wilson, you know, took prodigious numbers of drugs and had a terrible breakdown and sort of because there was so much love for Brian, he's managed to keep going and people just put him on stage and sing around him and back him up and somehow he's just about doing it. But he was, you know, he he was writing good vibrations and surfs up and heroes, villains, and all those extraordinary pieces of music. And, you know, that is burnout. I never had that. I I never – I've had quiet periods, but I I was also never born on the wings of acid like those people were. You know, I took it occasionally, but but I was aware that it was a – I was that it was risky. You know, I never thought, man, I'm going to go into this. You know, I was always quite circumspect because I'd seen what it had done to other people. I was second generation. So I've done my share of grooving, but I've never kind of gone, well, hey, off we go. It sounds like you've got a pretty good notion of whether it's better to burn out or fade away. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, opting, for, I'm opting for the fade away. <laughs> I'm opting for the fade away, and I hope I'll be writing songs, you know, from beyond the veil. I... I I've spent my life doing this. I'd like to think that I would, I've got many modifications I would go into for the next life. I would definitely be more, more physical. I'd learn to surf and skateboard. I would also uh, be, do carpentry and grow plants. I'd be more three dimensional in things rather than completely in my own head. But I'd like to carry on writing songs into the next world i've just you know i just i love it i it's what i made myself do because i listened to all those records as a teenager 
And um, as a result, I'm still churning this stuff out 50, 55 years later. Um, it, it's, uh, I, but I'm lucky. I, I, I will continue doing this as long as I physically can, whether, whether anybody hears it or not. 